This week on the podcast, Carrie and I talk whoa, whoa, with... Whoa, whoa, We can't pretend that this is the same as every week. We talked to a Disney legend. We got to interview Bob Gurr. <laughs> I know, right? I'm, I'm kind of trying to play it cool, but really, like, we were anything but cool this week. <laughs> well, we did giggle a little bit more than usual, I think, and we were tongue-tied here and there, and, and also at times a bit speechless. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because we're never speechless. (laughs) It was a real honor getting to interview Bob Gurr and we had a blast. I just hope everyone listening enjoys the episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Francine and you're listening to the Pixie Dust Fan Podcast, a podcast where our first topic of conversation will always be Disney. I've been a Disney fan for as long as I can remember, and I'm determined to bring more of that Disney magic into my everyday life. So if you need a little extra pixie dust in your day, you've come to the right place. Thanks so much for listening, and let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of the Pixie Dust Fan Podcast. Carrie and I are so excited to welcome an original Imagineer, a Disney legend, and a wonderful storyteller who is happily telling us about his adventures, Mr. Bob Gurr. Mr. Gurr, we are so excited to have you on the podcast with us today. Welcome. Well, welcome too, right there. All right. Are we ready to go, Mickey? Oh, he says, yes. All right. Look at that. We got a couple of girls out there, out there in the... uh, Digital land. Okay, here we go. We get the <laughs> first question, but um, you got to back up a minute. You called me Mister. I did. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll let you get away with it this time. <laughs> but we don't mind calling you Bob either. <laughs> we wanted to go back to when you started at the Disney Company. You've had an amazing career. And, and done so many amazing things over the years. But you actually started at the Disney Company in your early 20s. Uh, yes, uh, 20, 22 or 23. Yeah, 23. And you were brought on to work on Autopia. Yes. And the company was Walt Disney Productions. I'm a, almost 89 and tw- in the 20s is a long time ago. <laughs> yes. So, um, <laughs> So the company was known as WDP, or Walt Disney Productions. Yes. Wow. And the company changed. Uh, when Michael Eisner came in, it was uh, um, uh, renamed the, the Walt Disney Company. And your first, your first sort of ex, um, exploration at the, Walt, the company was working on the Autopia cars, right? You were designing sort of the outside of the cars? That's correct. And you had a history in, in working on cars. That was kind of your thing. Well, I went to Art Center College uh, because I wanted to design cars. In those days, it was called car styling, uh, which is kind of a bad word today because design is encompass everything. Uh, I wanted to be an aircraft engineer, but my math was um, score was too low, so I wasn't able to do... Uh, aircraft engineering. So I thought, well, I'll just do uh, cars uh, because it's only artistic. It doesn't require any math. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> We're a little tongue-tied We're with tongue-tied. you. <laughs> you don't... Well, I can, I can keep you tongue-tied for an hour here if you'd like. <laughs> We're just, we're so amazed to be able to even talk to you. Very excited. Yeah, we're very excited. Well, it's amazing. I woke up today. This is always the first surprise of the day. It's like, oh, let me see. Oh, yes, we we got stuff to do today. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You have such a great sense of humor as well. So your math skills kind of prevented the whole aviation. That's correct. but, But the car design was really a passion for you and and i think i've heard that if it had wheels at disneyland you were involved in it oh yeah somebody along the line said well what does bob do he says well if it has wheels he probably designed it that's that's pretty close uh description yes and yet you designed you also worked on the matterhorn yes 
and you'd never ridden a roller coaster before you started working on it? Well, I don't, I don't like roller coasters. I never, never rode them. I, you know, I would see them at an amusement park, but uh, when Walt assigned uh, me to work on the uh, Matterhorn and design the uh, track uh, course layout, he says, um, well, take your little boy and go down to Ocean Park Pier. They got a roller coaster, uh, ride it a bunch of times till you see how it works. And I, well, okay. I went down there and looked at it, looked at another attraction uh, called the Wild Mouse, and I was quite taken with the fact that uh, metal shavings were coming off the track in the sunlight, and I thought, well, I'd rather not ride that one. So I did ride the, uh, uh, the big roller coaster once only. I came back and told Walt, yeah, I've learned all about them now. <laughs> so you had enough knowledge then to really go ahead and, and do the Matterhorn? Well, yes, I've never designed a roller coaster before, but, um, you know, there's several things you got to do. The idea of the mountain, the size of it, that had already been sculpted by Fred Jerger, the modeler. And aero development up north had already been given the contract to build whatever we came up with. They were going to come up with the manufacturing uh, techniques and the materials and uh, also come up with a car uh, to manufacture based on my original drawings. And then I was to design the, uh, the track course. That, in other words, that would be what we would say the layout of where the track goes, you know, up, down, right, left, you know, all those uh, considerations. Uh, and Walt said, well, we're, we're going to put it inside the mountain. And oh, by the way, Bobby, put two tracks in there. Well, that's unheard of. You don't ever commingle uh, roller coaster tracks because roller coasters were always uh, made out of wood with steel plates and they were out in the breeze and you could see where everything is. So this was uh, quite a new thing to take two roller coasters, entwine them inside a cone-shaped mountain uh, and have some kind of a, a ride control system that's very, very safe. So there's a whole bunch of new things Walt uh, wanted to do. So getting back to the track, then it was my job. I had to design a course that started uh, down the, uh, by the entry to the attraction, go up a chain lift, and then uh, the two tracks would take off and uh, intermingle their way down the mountain, uh, in and out of the mountain, so to speak, all the way down to where it would uh, go through a water trough and then coast back into the station. So that is a... Um, You'd have to say it's quite a trigonometric bunch of physics that you have to figure out. Uh, today, all roller coasters are beautifully engineered. They're all done by computer. They're very easy to do. You can make anything you want. Uh, up to the Matterhorn, roller coasters are always done by uh, companies that design them by hand and had always uh, done them based upon their previous experience. So now we have Walt Disney says, two tracks in an ice cream cone, uh, intermingled, and a new kind of material, but it's gonna look like a bobsled. <laughs> so that, that was the start. So Walt showed me a bunch of drawings uh, that he picked up in Switzerland of how, how uh, racing bobsleds are built. So I made a drawing that showed how we could put uh, four uh, uh, large people in the, in the car. This is called a package seating uh, drawing. Uh, that is to say, we have a bunch of dimensions which will have wheels on the bottom, a, a body, and it'll have uh, locations of four people of what we call a 94th percentile size, which is an industry standard design, which meant four, four large people. Uh, in the shortest car that we could get. So I made that drawing first. Then since Walt hadn't quite decided how the overall, uh, let's say the look of the car should be, being a car designer, I made a real fancy, uh, hoopy scoopy looking rocket car uh, on top of the uh, package drawing. Uh, and both those drawings, by the way, uh, were sent to me about uh, two weeks ago by somebody at the studio who just happened to run across them. So, um, so I have them here on my uh, computer to remind me uh, the crazy stuff we were doing. First drawing was, I think it was July 23rd, 1958. And the second drawing was July uh, 30th, 
1958, which means that's only about not that many months before, you know, it's about maybe 11 months before we opened the attraction. Wow. So that was the first, that was the first step right there. Wow. Was that the, one of the most challenging projects you worked on when you worked, when you were working at Disneyland and building all the rides for Disneyland? Oh, I, um, I never saw anything as a challenge. I saw it more as, uh, say, do you know how many ways there are to do something? And then it's a case of figuring out several different ways and say, well, which one would look like it would go the furthest, fastest in, in getting something done? If that didn't work, well, I got another couple ideas. We'll just shift gears and do it a slightly different way. So I, I know that other people um, suffered because they always saw themselves in a challenge. Well, a challenge implies you're scared to do something because you don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just never saw stuff as, as a challenge. Um, none of the jobs uh, I ever saw, right from Autopia car, uh, Matterhorn, uh, Monorail, all the way up to, uh, Probably the nuttiest thing was uh, Steve went in Las Vegas in 19, uh, yeah, 1992, wanted a, uh, a, sink, a ship to sink on Las Vegas Boulevard on fire. <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of outrageous, but I thought, ooh, that would be really, really interesting. There's so many ways to do that. And uh, it didn't take only a couple of months. We figured out which is the easiest, best way to do it, and away we went. That's incredible. What a way to look at it. Um, so, so Bob, that like, when you look at that, what a leadership quality to have where somebody, you know, somebody asked you to do something and you don't see it as a challenge. You just think of how many ways can I do this? Yeah, it's, that's basically the way I've always uh, looked at things because uh, let's put it, put it another way. Um, if you were not a curious person, and you had uh, successfully gone to college and got an average degree and thought you knew something, then you'd probably see things as a challenge. But let's say if you're a person like, let's say, Walt Disney, you've been curious all your life from the time you're a little itty bitty kid. You're always putting your nose into something. You want to know about stuff. You take it apart to see how it works, and then it won't go back together. Uh, you you self-educate mostly. Even though, yeah, you can go to college. You know, Walt never got to college. Uh, you know, he, he had grammar school, which covered a lot of stuff. But that means you, you're, if you're a kind of a self-starter, curious person, you will have a lot of knowledge in your mind already. So that when somebody asks you to do something, you've never done it, right away you see uh, some of the elements of it uh, and how they could be done. And now you're in a good spot because you can see all the other elements and information that you're going to need. And if you're smart enough, you'll go find ways to find that information out. Today, we have the Internet, and it's easy as pie. Back in those days, we had encyclopedias and public libraries. Uh, and you had people that you could ask questions, or you could drive over to somebody's shop and walk in there and ask them how stuff is done. Um, so it's mostly collecting information that get you started uh, uh, very quickly and a job you've never, never done. This, this is any kind, of, any kind of trade. I think it would probably even work for a brain surgery if a doctor was very good at everything else. Because uh, he had already known an awful lot. That's so true. It's such a great way to look at it and such a positive spin on it. Now, you mentioned, is that how Walt challenged everyone at, at, at Imagineering is always just asking for something without necessarily knowing how it was going to be built? I wouldn't ever say, it's not correct to say that he challenged people. Challenge implies Walt is, looks at somebody, knows what they already can do, and threatens them to do something they've never done. None, none of those folks ever saw something as a threat. They saw it as, oh, well, I've never done that. And Walt would say, well, it's time you start. <laughs> Just a very quick conversation. Um, because a boss giving you a challenge, it happens in industry all the time. The big mm -hmm. corporations, it happens. 
where you get a president, even of a company like, like Disney, where you got a president says, I hereby order you to do this thing my way, and I want you to get started now, and if you drop the ball, I'll fire you. That's a challenge, because the guy might not be able to do what the boss wants, because what the boss wants uh, has way too many stupid reasons why it'll never work. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It happens all the time. In, uh, it's in so Oregon. true. Yes. So the idea is you really shouldn't be around uh, people that are like that. You should be around uh, people that are more like a Walt Disney. They have ideas. They see possibilities. They, they see what uh, people might be able to do. And it's more of an invitation to get started on it rather than a challenge. Wow. See how yeah. important the language is that mm -hmm. you use? Because today in, you know, corporations, that's what leaders do. They say, I'm going to give you a challenge. And it's just become part of the, the language for how, how they kind of grow their employees. But yet the, the way you just worded that saying it was an invitation is that's such a great leadership quality. It's actually, it's impolite to challenge somebody because uh, it's a popular word, a popular thing to do. Uh, you have a lot of competitive um, sports programs on television. You have some crazy uh, stuff where, you know, are you going to take the plunge challenge or you're going to go off and go in the jungle and survive? <laughs> oh, it's good. It's great show business, but it's not a polite thing. It really, it's not nice to set somebody up for failure. You just, you just shouldn't do that. But there are companies and, uh, and bosses around the world have, have always done that. But uh, luckily for the Imagineers, Walt was not like that. And what could you, I've heard you say many times that he was very almost ordinary that was that people didn't really know when the big businesses would come in to meet with them their lip would quiver and and they seemed very nervous around him and yet to you he was just walt well yes that's correct um walt did a lot of subtle things to um make sure that there, there's no big uh distance separating uh, separating him with from uh, his, a lot of his uh, designers artist uh he mentioned a couple of times he says uh, he says I, I can't have that distance i we have to get stuff done and we have to talk every day uh and he he'd do that in such a manner that it, it seemed like very very natural but this is almost like saying uh gee uh we went to church last sunday and the pastor showed up and he says oh by the way i got head guy he's uh come on in here god i want you to meet my flock here um <laughs> it's that kind of a thing well you'd be pretty nervous if you say, oh, i've heard about you mr god but look oh my gosh you gotta we gotta talk to you yes you have to talk to me we gotta be friends here you know if you want to believe me well okay so it's, it's that kind of a goofy thing but walt did it sort of very in a very subtle subtle way uh, some of the things that i really remember was Businessmen always look good, the collar looks good, the tie is on, everything. But sometimes Walt would get into a meeting and he'd uh, unbutton the shirt and he'd flop the tie around a little bit. And, you know, kind of look a little bit ratty looking uh, because that sort of served a visual to others uh, with him at the table that, oh, it's okay, okay, we're, we're not, we don't have to be that formal around here. And of course, anybody who worked at the Disney studio up through, um, oh, let's say the, um, early 80s um a lot of people never wore ties you wear them when you have to but a lot of people didn't wear ties uh we had a little name tags with a first name with no titles uh so it was a very, it was very informal so in other words you didn't have uh, the business pressure uh, feel now i remember at disneyland when disneyland kind of got remanaged a little bit in the uh, early 80s I'd go down there and I'd find uh, the employees in the management part. They had very trim, nice fitting Brooks Brothers suits. And I took particular note of their shoes. They're really stylish, highly shined shoes. This was very different than the management that uh, Walt had because uh, you don't wear a fancy shoe in a park. You're going to get mud on it and flowers and whatever and uh, following the horses and all that stuff. 
no, you, you, you dress how you fit the park as a, as, a, as a manager. But when I saw black Mercedes cars, BMWs, Brooks Brothers suits, and shiny shoes, I thought, well, yeah, the company's getting pretty mature, but it's not, not the one I remember. Yeah. Pardon my ragging, but that, but I just, <laughs> just observing the uh, the protocol that at companies evolve. For sure. And was Roy this? Did you have much interaction with Roy? Was he similar with in the mannerisms that Walt had? No, I only uh, had a meeting with Roy one time only. Uh, he uh, was asked to come over and solve a financial dispute issue on a car that I had designed, the Mark 7 Autopia, in which um, the accounting department said uh, we cannot allow the manufacturer of these cars to proceed because the prototype cost is uh, way, out of, way out of line. And uh, we found out later it was because another project in the same company had been using our accounting number to hide their uh, over costs, which meant uh, our, our development costs were real high. Um, the accountants just were, were not gonna allow us to proceed. So uh, Roy was called over and uh, the vice president of Disneyland, Dick Nunes was called up and the cars in the parking lot were looking at it. And Roy looks at Dick and he says, do you need the cars? Yes, I do. Roy, Roy looked at the accountants and he says, build the car. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, Roy, Roy could see the large, important picture. Um, very, very good uh, judgment. His, um, his follow-up judgment, I think, was uh, one of Walt's uh, secrets because sometimes you'd you'd get a story to do with uh, budgeting and how you got to go find the money. And it was little comments once in a while. Well, what does Roy really do? Well, his kid brother, 10 years younger, has all this stuff he wants to do. And I have to go find the money for the kid to do the stuff. <laughs> and that was pretty close. That's pretty close to <laughs> what Roy's, the super role that he had. But he was very, um, he was very kind, um, stern when you gotta be. Uh, I, I liked his wife uh, uh, very well. Uh, one time I was on a company plane with her and we, uh, we had quite a nice time on the company plane. Uh, next morning, Roy had to uh, do some all day business stuff in Orlando. So she said, well, uh, Bob, meet me for breakfast in the morning. So I went down to the coffee shop and met her for breakfast. And the first thing she showed me was she clipped all the ads out of the uh, a local paper. Or she, and then she told me, she said, well, I'm going to Woolworths, and then I'm going over to Newberry's. And she says, I got the stuff I want to look at, and the price looks good. So that's what I'm going to do for the day. Uh, so Roy's going to do what he has to do. And I thought, well, boy, those two, Mr. and Mrs. Roy Disney, they were realists, and they were down home. They were farm folks and no pretensions of any kind. So based upon uh, what I learned from her about Roy, um, Walt was lucky to have an older brother like that. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely, so much we wouldn't have without him. When do you, I don't know if you get to, to visit the parks as much, um, but do, when you get into Disneyland, is there a place aside from like the big, the Matterhorn and, and those things where you see something in the park and you think, I did that. Like something smaller that maybe people wouldn't notice. Well, it's interesting that you ask that <laughs> uh, because most of those are in the category of things that are not here anymore. Oh, oh no. Uh, those things existed up through uh, the, the 65th year of Disneyland, but they didn't last much longer after the, uh, the, the I mean, the 60th anniversary, which was 2005. Right. So um, I would really like to keep uh, original memories in my, in my brain 
of the of the Disneyland that Walt Disney uh, built. Mm -hmm. I would rather not uh, go look at personally um, the things that are not quite what Walt would have would would meet the kind of standards uh, and entertainment that uh, that he did. Uh, companies companies have to keep moving forward all the time. But uh, that's my first personal opinion of, uh, I wanna keep those memories up through uh, uh, 2000 and, uh, 2015, uh, because they're very, very important. Uh, I can certainly see photographs of uh, things that are different since that time, but that doesn't mean I have to go see them. <laughs> very so true. Kind of a, that's kind of a sideways answer to you. <laughs> but to me, it's very, it's very important. Absolutely. It's uh, it, when you go to Disneyland and you see the evolution of it, it's hard not to think back to what it was originally. And on opening day, it really wasn't quite ready, but yet everyone had a smile on their face and said it was. <laughs> well, yeah, they, uh, I vividly remember the, uh, the months leading up to the opening. And then of course the months of the first summer, uh, we continued to build it all the way through, uh, you know, right into 1956, we were still trying to finish everything. Um, but enough, enough was there that uh, the people who wanted to enjoy it, enjoyed it. And then the, uh, the journalists that were naysayers in the movie industry, uh, they got their licks in really good. They found so many things that were negative and would never work. So um, yeah, those, some of those uh, journalists, um, people with a lot of strong opinions of negativity, um, the public proved them completely wrong and uh, the whole thing proved Walt completely right. And he was, he was full of smiles that day. Oh, the night before, according to Diane, she said that was the best she'd seen her daddy in a long time. Because it was about to open the next day, an extremely busy day. And then you were quite involved with the Florida project as well. Well, we all were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we were, Imagineering was still expanding. We were, uh, you know, it expanded even more with four projects of the World's, New York World's Fair. Uh, and all that was leading eventually to uh, what we were gonna do in Florida. So uh, the turning point was in the company was really buying all that Florida property and thinking really, really big uh, with projects, you know, that eventually would become an Epcot, starts with the Magic Kingdom, and then of course everything else has been added over and over many, many years. There will be stuff will be added and changed to the Florida project uh, for the next couple hundred years. Absolutely. And the World's Fair. So there was the, the Carousel of Progress, uh, It's a Small World. Small world. When you worked, because you worked on um, the audio animatronics for It's a Small World as well. And like, Mr. Lincoln. And all Mr. Lincoln, all of them. Um, <laughs> well, uh, remember the small world job didn't get started until less than a year before opening. Uh, very, very short. So a lot of quick decisions had to be made uh, very rapidly because um, I guess it was the UNICEF Children's Fund uh, wanted to enter the fair and there was a piece of property there and uh, no time, no money and nobody to do it. And they approached Walt and Walt, and Walt says, okay. Yes. Uh, Rolly Crump and uh, a number of people immediately uh, figuring out what to do. And the idea was, okay, it's little kids. Okay, uh, we're not gonna have a bunch of animated figures. We're gonna have one doll, one design. Okay, all of the uh, all the action is going to be uh, electrical, and it's going to be at a certain beat. Everything. Okay, we're going to have so you, you can have a, a music beat to it. So what that meant was all of the things we had to manufacture instead of building, you know, two hundred one-off, we were going to build two hundred of one, which meant that the production would go very very fast. And with the dolls, it didn't matter whether they were boys or girls. You know, one had pants, one had dresses, and they all had makeup. Uh, and they could, they could fit any country you wanted. <laughs> People like Alice Davis, they could see in an instant uh, how to do that. 
Roly Crumpkins, he had an incident, uh, uh, the little design details that you do, and then once those decisions have been made, everybody just, they just race into production uh, because everybody could see exactly what they're gonna do and how basically simple it was. In fact, the, the funny part was, which Richard Sherman always tells everybody, was we had all this stuff set up in the shop and they, we had a little Bodine motors that just ran some little cams, you know, because you go there, there and you'll see the kids are all, they all look like they're all doing the same thing, you know, it's very monotonous, but, but it's pretty. Uh, these things were all running and clicking away and uh, the Sherman brothers uh, came in to take a look and Walt showed them around. And uh, they said, oh, what on earth is all of this? And, and Walt said, well, you're, you're, you're going to write music for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it went quick. And later, the guys came back the next day with, uh, with uh, the, the essence of uh, a small world. Uh, because Richard would always be the guy to tell you, he says, well, we don't have to write music, but we can sure do ditties really fast. And I thought, Gee, there's a famous composer using the word Diddy on his own work. <laughs> and when you guys were building the small world, you were building everything at the same time. Like, I can't imagine a work environment where all of those, those four projects are happening and, you're, and everybody's kind of working on little bits and pieces at once to bring all of these things together to be ready for when that World's Fair opens, which I guess Disneyland would have been much bigger than that. You were working on, everyone was working on so many things to get a park open quickly, like in one year, right? <laughs> in 19, uh, 1959, the new uh, Tomorrowland project where we rebuilt all of Tomorrowland, uh, I worked on every one of the jobs. I, I, Walt had me start on the, on the submarine ride, worked on the, uh, you design the overall shape of the submarine, how it's gonna work, designed the track for the Matterhorn, uh, and along with that, designing the Mark V Autopia car and the motorboat cruise. And then, oh, starting in October, the monorail. <laughs> so I'm doing, five, I'm doing five jobs all in parallel. And everybody that's assigned to those projects were all working in parallel. Uh, it was a, uh, almost a normal thing because some of the jobs, all, people worked on everything all, all at once and we just got used to it. So the World's Fair, while actually being four big things that were in business with the sponsors, uh, it was a bit more massive, you know, because it's, uh, you know, it's a place where you got to fly back and forth to. Um, but we were already uh, completely used to that. In the case of the, um, the New York World's Fair, that well, we only had four projects, and I only primarily worked on about three of them. So it was, it was, it was a lot easier. <laughs> a lot easier to work on three simultaneously <laughs> and you think of how quickly you put that together and yet for the most part it's a small world is still the same after all these years like it stood the test of time well when you do a simple idea and it has a story that's easy to understand um and you don't make it too complicated. Uh, the thrust of the idea is very, very easy for a guest to understand. Example, Small World is a very good example. It's got color, motion, light. It's cute, nice music, boat ride, smooth, serene. All of the nice things that are pleasant for a family to all jump in a boat and have a nice ride. And you don't have to explain it because you don't need any language. Just the visual is the language of every country because you say the word France, Germany, or Japan, immediately people know what you're supposed to be seeing, you know, what each country would, would look like. What would the clothes or the mountains or different details be like? What would, the, you know, what kind of music would there, it would sound like? Same way with pirates. You don't ever have to explain the word pirate to anybody in any language. Mm -hmm. You know, pirates, everybody reads a story or they've seen movies about it. You know, historically, pirates are always a source of great stories for hundreds of years. You know, but a modern day person would say, uh, what, we're gonna spend uh, a bunch of million dollars on uh, some uh, outlaws that should be arrested and put in jail? 
uh, and we're going to show the little kids how to steal stuff, <laughs> and they drink. I mean, this is outrageous. Who would do a thing like that? <laughs> Another way to look at it. But, it. but either way, whether this is an outrageous wrong thing to show children, or whether this, oh, that's what pirates do. That's kind of fun. Uh, you have no doubt about what you're looking at because it has a story. That's so cool. That's so, <laughs> now, when you were working on the Florida project, I, I, I was wondering if you ever worked on um, Dream Flight or if you had wings. Yes and no, because I designed the original Omnimover for the um, Voyage to Inner Space. It was then uh, later used for the Haunted Mansion. And then it's been used ever since, all the way up to the Little Mermaid ride at Disneyland. So, uh, yes, I worked on it because years before I'd already designed it. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. Because those, the Omnimover, the Doom buggies, and all of that, they're very similar in all the attractions when you see them. And they move. And they move. <laughs> and anything that moves. <laughs> when you look at, um, all of the people that you've met in your career and working, you know, you say that Walt was, you just talked to him like he was, he was just Walt. Have you ever been starstruck by people that you met throughout your career? That's funny. I get that question once in a while. I have to honestly say, I never met anybody that blew me away. I think it's just because I remember in high school, I was, 17 and somebody approached me one day and said uh, robert you're awfully profound and i had to go to the library to look it up profound oh um beyond my years i guess okay um i remember admiring uh what people do what i don't ever ever recall being uh all of, all of twitter in the presence of somebody that I knew was extremely famous. Um, you could probably say, well, circumstances under which I met Walt, because I was never introduced, I was just all of a sudden we're there uh, working on stuff. So, you know, I was not, I didn't Google or anything, you know. <laughs> One day Walt walked away from some guys talking about a car, and then when, they, when, they, when he walked away, everybody said, see you, Walt. And it was like, oh, that must have been Walt Disney, you know. And then by the next week, he's just talking to me, just like anybody else. Um, I suppose uh, he introduced me to the uh, the vice president of the United States. Um, he didn't impress me any. So I'm, <laughs> if, if a vice president of the whole country doesn't <laughs> doesn't make you starstruck. I don't know who I'm going to meet. <laughs> It'll turn me on. You know? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people you admire because they, they, they're good thinkers. They, they have good standards. They have good uh, judgment. They have a lot of empathy for people. Uh, these are the people I really, really uh, admire them. Of course, a lot of them are in history. They go, go way, way, way back. You know, sometimes go back two thousand years or so. Um, but yeah, there's a. One day I was talking to, um, uh, boy, I can't think of his name now. The fellow that wrote uh, Fahrenheit uh, four two one. He used to used to work at Disney. What was his name? Oh, I got a brain fade here. Uh, he's a futurist. He's a good friend of Walt. He's a futurist. He hung around wet all the time. Um, well, anyway. Uh, I was talking to him one day and about uh, animatronic figures because he, uh, he liked the Lincoln that I designed. In fact, I gave him one of the parts from it because he wanted to have it in his office in his basement. Um, but he said, he says, Bob, he says, you know, I want you to make uh, a bunch of animated figures, maybe a half a dozen of them. And uh, I want you to put them all around the table because I want to go in there and I want to talk to these guys. And he started listing the names. I want to talk to Plato. I want to talk to Aristotle. I really want to, I want to talk to Ben Franklin because he, he was a guy. And the young kid, the redhead, Thomas Jefferson, I want to talk to him. Um, and I was quite impressed with the seriousness um, that 
he felt these were terribly important people and they should be audio-animatronic figures that we can have a good conversation with today. So beyond that, it's, uh, I'm kind of, kind of stumbling because I suppose I should have given you an answer saying, oh, I met Madonna once. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, well, you know, one of my clients um, in the 80s was Michael Jackson, but to me, Michael Jackson was just uh, uh, a very serious-minded uh, kid, about 26 years old, uh, understood things very, very quickly, a very extremely polite person, but um, I didn't see him as the Michael Jackson everybody else saw him. I just saw him as a, a, a kid uh, with, uh, with a group of people that wanted to achieve something for, they got to do a rock and roll show and uh, see America with 27 different stops, and they had a lot of equipment they had to get built. And he asked me to design and build something for him. So yeah, I that I don't get in the Twitter over Walt Nixon and <laughs> Michael Jackson. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that's the way it is, you know. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Of course, the other part of it is um, you can have an ordinary conversation with people because I, I have met a lot of important people and they get introduced to me. And I do notice that uh, when you don't um, gaga or gush in front of them, they sense that immediately and you have a nice conversation because you're just two people mm -hmm. chattering. Example, first time I met uh, um, uh, Russell, Russell, what's uh, the actor? Kurt huh? Russell? Kurt, yeah, Kurt Russell, yeah. There, I know a lot of Russells, say. Kurt. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he's, a, he's an airplane pilot. I'm an airplane pilot. And uh, walked in the door at a Disneyland uh, hotel at the, I guess it was, was the Pirate Suite, I think. A bunch of people there, and we immediately start chattering about airplanes, because I knew the kind of airplane he was, uh, really, he flew, they really, really liked. And after about a half hour, there was, VIP people were trying to get us to shut up because we were late for dinner now. Um, but there's the kind of thing that, um, yeah, he's an actor, yeah, but, uh, you know, he, he works all the time. And then oh, a couple of years later, he, somebody pulled a trick on me. Uh, I, I know his mother and I know his sister. Um, we were going down to a little restaurant in Montrose and we we're driving down the street and on the sidewalk, there's Kurt just walking down the street. It was a trick. He wanted to just be a regular guy and, and join me for, uh, for a dinner on the sidewalk there. He brought a bunch of wine because he's a, he's a vet there. He had a very nice line of wine. <laughs> and we had a nice evening there. And um, we get up ready to leave. And uh, the table next door, the people were polite and nobody ever butt in. Only one lady walked down the street and said, uh, say, are you who I think you are? And he said, well, yes, ma'am, I certainly am. <laughs> she kept on walking. But here's what a funny thing he did. He got up and um, he talked to the lady at the next table. And she says, I want you to meet, I want you to meet somebody. Uh, I'm having dinner with a Disney legend here. I, I, come on, Bob, I want you to meet these ladies. I mean, it's the other way around. He wanted, he wanted to introduce <laughs> somebody. And then uh, everybody, everybody got back in their cars, and then all of a sudden he says, I want to go to Bob's house. So everybody says, okay, we'll drive to Bob's house. And then they said, okay, you ride with Kurt, you show him how to get there. So just as ordinary as you can be. You know, so I got a nice picture of him holding an airplane in my kitchen. You know? <laughs> but it's the same thing Walt was with everybody he was around. Um, the, the gushing that regular folks do all the time, in my experience, I really, I saw very little of that. Um, if somebody that was very important that you were, you were going to meet, uh, it was a fascinating conversation. I even met a guy who was on the moon one time, uh, <laughs> Edgar Mitchell. He was the guy that went up there with a golf club and a golf ball, got away with it. Um, he was doing some consulting for Disney one day, and I had a great uh, a lunch and an afternoon with him. A very interesting man. That, I could talk to the man on the moon. Um, interesting conversation, because he's such an interesting person. Same with Buzz Aldrin. He was another guy that uh, 
You circled the moon, he didn't land on it. But yeah, there's people you really would really enjoy, but if you gush over them, it turns them off in an instant. Right. Yeah. So, so when we gushed at the beginning over you? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but you, you have to stop. I, I stopped you, didn't I? You did. <laughs> well, that's, that's the way we got to do it. Well, and thank you for that, because it's been, it's been such a wonderful conversation talking to you. You're, abs you're fascinating, the stories, and I love your outlook on, on people. You have such great insight on, in people. And, and how they interact and how, how you, you just put people at ease. It's, well, it's a talent. Yeah, people should learn to do that. I know that um, down at Disney particularly, there'd be a situation where the shop was all upset about something and uh, everybody's trying to give orders in the shop and it's keeping people confused. And I know one day, the boss sent me down to the shop floor and he says, you go down, you, you straighten that thing out. We can't seem to figure out what's going on. So I remember going down there and I gathered up a half a dozen guys. And I said, uh, okay, uh, everybody grab a big two by four and smash your side of your head with it and knock yourselves unconscious. I want you to get neutral. And when you got that done, we're going to talk about the things on this vehicle that we're trying to design and I want you to ignore everything you've ever been told or told to read about this project and they agreed I said, okay okay and we started at zero and in about a half hour all the guys were smiling talking to one another and they were figuring out how they're going to do the next step and I remember the next day the boss called me he says what did you do <laughs> Well, it was simple. Treat people with empathy for the situations they're in. You can also learn Myers-Briggs theory at the same time. You'll learn a lot if you do that. That's There's your home. You got your homework now. Uh, we'll do that homework yep, for sure. <laughs> and I think when we like the career you led and the outlook you have on your career and what in and how you approached everything, like when you were talking to us about you know not having things as a challenge and and like just inspiration to how we should approach you know our careers and what we do in our lives and it's just very inspiring and awesome yes if if you could think about you know there's generations now that are starting to fall in love with disney the way we all are but really don't know much about that walt disney world is there was a man named walt and I think it's so important to keep so much of that history alive. Yeah, like there was Walt and then there was the original Imagineers that built all of this stuff too. Right. So how do we, going forward, make sure that we're honoring that and still having progress? And, and you know, it's never going to be complete, but how do we make sure we honor the original Imagineers? I had that same conversation with Diane Disney a long time ago because she was very aware of the fact that a lot of people were beginning to see the uh, Walt Disney brand when the management started to change uh, with that management in the, in the 1980s. Uh, and it was some concern, and that was one of the reasons she uh, wanted to really proceed ahead with her uh, the idea for the Walt Disney Family Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you've been up there, you'll notice it's not about the uh, Walt Disney Productions. It's not about the Walt Disney Company. It's about Walt Disney. Walt Disney the man. And that was her father. That's a giant effort on her part to do something like that. Mm -hmm. she's, you know, she's gone now. And then, uh, then Ron's gone too. So uh, um, I think um, Tamantha Miller, she's, she's the president now. Uh, so it's in very good hands, mm -hmm. but if, if you don't focus on the good parts of your Americana, uh, it can slowly fritter away and be overwhelmed by uh, more, uh, you know, the more business mercantile revenue side of life when it's, it's the people that actually made, made America. Mm -hmm. uh, so people have to put an effort towards uh, knowing who these folks were and uh, 
paying attention to him. It's like Walt paying attention to Abraham Lincoln. All the presidents, Walt was just so enamored with uh, Abraham Lincoln. It just, it just drove him that he was going to do something about Abraham Lincoln someday, and he did get the chance to do it, and I was tickled pink to uh, uh, do my part of that. Um, so this, basically, it's what I do. Uh, I, I enjoy all of the blogs that I do. Uh, as long as they talk about Walt uh, enough, you know, during an hour, let's say. Um, I can't really contribute much to the history of Walt if I have to answer questions about local uh, trivia that is great interest of a lot of the Disney fans. Uh, I'd much rather uh, share my the things I know about Walt because uh, we were there. Um, backing up just a little bit, uh, the um, D23 archive or the archives had a list uh, years and years ago of the um, original 18 people that Walt had hired to design Disneyland by the end of uh, December of 1954. There was um, 11 people inside the studio that Walt reassigned. Then there were seven people from outside the company brought in, and I was one of the uh, seven uh, outsiders so that was 18 of us and over the years um since they were all older guys and i was the younger one uh they're all gone and uh last one was existential he uh, he really got way up into his 90s and then he he had to leave so um it's kind of an awkward thing when somebody looks at me and says bob do you know you're the only one left standing and i says yeah, I know. <laughs> Who's getting all the questions? <laughs> so it's like um, I wake up in the morning and I think, oh boy, who's going to call today and who's going to ask what? Um, but it's like I could simply not pick up the phone. Um, but that would be impolite. If somebody wants to know about Walt and would like to continue that interest, well, um, it, it would be impolite not to help. So that's about the set and setting here. It's just, it's incredible. And we're so blessed that you have the, the stories to share with us. And I mean, he was an incredible man. And yet none of us had the chance to, to speak to him or, or work with him. And, and hearing from you, what we all know to sort of believe from hearing from someone that actually spoke to him and worked for him and and experienced it it's not a myth he was a wonderful man and a good leader and mm -hmm. and really wanted to do wonderful things for families and for everyone to enjoy yeah well uh it was full of ideas um never looked back always looked forward um it was basically fun stuff. He, he always wanted to do stuff that's fun, but uh, something that, that's good. Um, those, are, those are the noble attributes uh, the good creative people in the world have always had. Uh, those are the lessons people uh, should take away for themselves. That he was all, and he was having fun. Well, he, he had a train set in his backyard, didn't he? He had a train. <laughs> like a train. Yes, yeah. at the Holmby Hills home, yeah, yeah he uh, designed the uh, little railroad. Uh, he helped uh, build uh, parts of the locomotive himself in the machine shop after work. He'd go down to the shop where my uh, my immediate boss, Roger Brogy Sr., would teach Walt how to, how to weld, how to do sheet metal work, how to do riveting. And then Walt built all the, uh, all the wooden cars by himself. Uh, Why did he have the time? And yeah. he, he was into miniatures too. Didn't he build miniatures? I know because he was always going home with scripts to read. He'd come in the house, you know, and, and uh, go get a hot dog and, and feed that big brown dog he had. And then, then he'd light his cigarettes and sit in the chair and read scripts all, uh, in the evening. Uh, and then still have time to go play train out there as much, as much as he could, yes. Anyway, love doing all that stuff. Just just looking at the twinkle in his eye when something worked well. I mean, that's that's all the pay you ever needed. I bet. Because everybody wanted to do that stuff for him. He just he just sort of welcomed that in that people really wanted to do these things for him. Well, yeah. Example in the first couple of months when I was there, I was very startled in a, in a meeting. 
and he was doodling some sketches with a couple of the guys as a really clever looking idea. And then all of a sudden he kind of pulled back from the table and he says, you know, boys, those little bastards are gonna love this. And he <laughs> kind of took me back with a language, but the way he did it with this enthusiastic twinkle, uh, I could see, oh, he, he's really aware of fun stuff. No, no wonder he's got a railroad. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the opportunity to see that railroad at his no, house? No, I did it because uh, by the time uh, the end of 54, he'd already taken the Lily Bell out of service and had moved it back to the studio. And uh, the second room, no, the third room that I was assigned to in those first couple of months was a big room with a big long grafting table. And the room had been used by Eddie Sargent, who was a draftsman who drew up all the passenger cars. But the Lily Bell was on this roll around track in front of my drafting board in that room. But I didn't realize the significance of it. Uh, but after a while, it dawned on me why uh, I got a big room with a leather chair. And Walt would come in a couple of times a week and just look around, uh, chat, sit down, ask questions. And it turned out that that was the room on the long drafting board that he and Herb Ryman drew the big Disneyland drawing. They spent the weekend in that room. Wow. And it was also uh, the room that uh, he gave to Eddie Sargent to draw the passenger cars. So it was logical that, well, when the Lily Bell came back, that's the room for Lily Bell. And then he gave the room to me. Wow. That's How cool crazy. is that? That is cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. I, I feel like we've been all over the place and we've taken so much of your time. Um, and I, I'm so thankful that you, you've joined us to answer these questions and, and share, share some of this history with us. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. Um, we sort of end our, our podcast always with us sharing something that made us happy. Uh, just recently, it can be anything that, you know, sort of brought us pixie dust. It's, um, it's how we focus on the positive and, and try to make sure we bring some of that to us every week. Um, is there something this week that kind of made you smile or, or made you happy? It can be anything. I get them by the dozens a week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give you the most recent one. Over behind me over here, I'll, maybe I can show that to you. See those, whoops, whoops, see those screens over there? Yeah. All right, I'm learning SolidWorks. It's the most involved uh, CAD design system because I've been working on a uh, electric mobility vehicle project uh, at uh, for Walt Disney World uh, with an outside company. And I haven't touched a computer for uh, design in 20 years. So I found myself uh, many months ago, just as the uh, pandemic started, to start learning a, an extremely involved CAD system. Uh, it's an awful lot of stuff to learn, but every day I learn one or two more things that go really, really, really well. And just before the, uh, the program started here, there was something I was trying to do, uh, getting some uh, computer cabling to go through this little scooter so everything fit just right. And I had to uh, design, had to draw pictures of a wheel and a little hub and a bunch of parts and put them back in the assembly drawing. And the whole thing worked and the pictures came out perfect. And I just thought, woo, before <laughs> the girls call, I got that one done. <laughs> so yes, I have pixie dust several times an hour. That's it's just awesome. waiting. Yeah. That is, that's awesome. Well, good. I'm glad you got that working. That's got to feel good. That's definitely pixie dust. That's pixie dust. <laughs> that, that's Bob Gurr size pixie dust. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, for us, I think I can speak for both Francine and I that our pixie dust is getting to have you on our podcast and spending an hour chatting with you. And honestly, we think you're the coolest cat around. And we have a hundred questions to ask you. And, and we're so glad we had you to ask the ones that, that we did get to ask. And um, we just want to thank you for being our pixie dust this week. Yes. Well, it's my pleasure. Anytime I get called uh, a cool cat, uh, I'll certainly take that one. Because, uh, I'll be 89 here before another two months or so, which means I only got 11 years to go and I could be 100. Oh, <laughs> that, was, 
That's going to be fun, yes. That's going to be well, quite the celebration. You're a cool cat because you designed the Disneyland monorails and everything that moves all over the, the places we truck. love, the fire trucks, the, the Omnimovers, everything. But like you are the, still the coolest cat ever. Like you're working always you have the best outlook designing your design you're designing you're learning software and um did you hear that Mickey did you hear what they just said I'm a cool cat you are the coolest cat and oh, and, and you're and you're a mouse oh that's whoa. right you, you better watch out I'm I'm sorry Mickey I'm sorry I they call they call me the cat you know yeah he's gonna have to watch out he didn't know he was living with the coolest cat around so okay. for sure now, before you go, though, we can't. We have to mention that you've got uh, a collectible right now, a Matterhorn collectible. Yes. Oh, a very uh, famous uh, local artist came up with this idea a couple of months ago of making a, um, a little uh, collectible object, you know, about that big, uh, representing the Matterhorn Mountain with a little bit of water and a little bit of track and a nice vehicle uh, that is held on there by a magnet. Uh, beautifully scaled, very nice, and I looked at the uh, drawing of it, and I thought, oh, this, I would really like to buy one of those if they get made, and I said, you know, we could improve it just a little bit. We could change <laughs> the box in the front and make the rocks a little bit more prominent in the back and have the car kind of diving a little bit, and so it'll have some nice, nice appearance to it, and, um, and I made a little sketch over the guy's drawing, and then uh, my manager, Ernie, said, Oh, the guy really liked it. He immediately made the changes in the drawing and then made his uh, 3D model the same way. So I thought, well, um, the ideas fit really good because they had a basic idea, really, really nice. Then I saw the uh, first article prototype a week or so ago, and I really fell in love with it then. So I, um, I didn't jump in time fast enough. The first 24 got sold before I told Ernie, oh, I'll take one, I'll take one. <laughs> Oh, I gotta wait. I gotta put my order in for the uh, next one. <laughs> so, and that's everyone can find that information on um, yeah, no, uh, fandomproductions.com. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it might be something I, I signed, but I didn't jump fast enough to get one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure in the end you can. You, the, I'm sure you'll be able enough. to get your pa your paws <laughs> on one of them. Well, have have no fear. There are two more people with ideas of uh, products that Ernie and I could uh, make that I could sign. Uh, one of them I have, uh, I'm looking at them in my office. They've already been made uh, in 3D. It's a uh, five piece set of tiki themed Disneyland ride vehicles. If you can imagine a monorail with the skin of a pineapple, if you can imagine the people mover in which the safety bars are done in bamboo and twine. Um, there's so many yeah, things we could have talked about for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and, and, if you, and especially, a, a, the people over looks good, Skyware, we have a, uh, uh, a uh, dune buggy that's uh, sort of like a dole whip dune, dune buggy. Sounds like heaven. Uh, and they're, they're, they're proceeding on that. Then there's another one in Florida that I've, uh, they've got me to start the design. I'm kind of late on it. Um, that's kind of a Florida themed, but it has to do with vehicles. Um, but it's only one item. So I have to find time to work on that on my computer. <laughs> so yeah, have, have no fear. There'll be, uh, if you miss something there, there's more stuff that somebody will uh, think up doing. Well, we're very excited to hear that as collectors and now friends of Bob, where we absolutely have to have this tiki one. Sounds fabulous. And um, another thing we wanted to mention is that you do your Wallland tours in, in Los Angeles, but they're on hold right now. But hopefully in the future, you'll do your Wallland tours. And that's a tour around Los Angeles that tells the history of Walt Disney and your history, your story. Um, those are bus tours, right? You do them monthly. And then you also have a biography you've written. So that's something that people can find on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And we'll link that in the show we'll, notes. We'll so. link to all of these in the show notes so that anybody listening can, can find them and find you and, and absolutely like. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the book came out uh, last May. It's, it's $20, it's very affordable. You can also get it for your uh, e-reader, mm -hmm. do that. 
and uh, sales just chug along every month. There's people who gradually discover and like to have it. Also found out, uh, well, yes, it's printed in a soft cover, but what people do, you pay, I think, $1.89 extra and you get the e-reader version. A lot of people like to read the book on their smartphone when they got nothing to do, but then they can keep a, a pristine copy that's, uh, that's the paperback, paper bound uh, in their library. See, the first book that I did was uh, designed just for fun. That was back about eight years ago. A very expensive book. It was eight, eight, uh, $58.95. And I printed uh, 2000 because I, I was the publisher and I did everything on it. And um, deliberately told people, I said, there will never be a repeat. This is 2000 only, a blue edition and a red edition. And because uh, I know that people value uh, collector books, so they, they hate to see a company come out with an up, up you know, an up, up rated version, and that kills the original investment in, in, in the book. Mm -hmm. So now, sometimes on eBay, I'll see this thing offered for as much as uh, $2,300 for a $58.95 book. Uh, I know who bought more than one. I have the records because I sold <laughs> all and shipped them out of here. Um, average price is about $695 when they change hands. And uh, as the years go by, there's less and less ever show up on the internet. So, uh, so the, the newer book is uh, a lot of very interesting stories in all directions, uh, touches on a lot of nice subjects, but it's only 20 bucks. So it's a, it's a nice, easy read. It's a bunch of short stories that are very interesting that people have no idea anything about. It's, it's a good read. It's a really good read. <laughs> it's a really I, good We read. have a signed copy. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, they're worth an extra $5. Yes. <laughs> we always sell one of those for 25 bucks. Yeah. We're not selling our copies. No way. <laughs> well, thank you again so All much, right. Bob, for, for spending time with us and sharing some stories. It's been, it's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, just as long as we get to talk about Walt Disney and what that means to American history while well, I'm up for it. Anytime. Uh, see, can I ask you one last question, Bob? Yeah. Does it bother you if people call it Disney World instead, instead of, of Walt Disney World? No, remember, people will give you your moniker uh, no matter what you say. Rolly Crump will tell you that he had three different uh, monikers. Sometime it was uh, uh, Roland, and one time for a couple of years it was what's his name, um, and I had no choice because Walt insisted on calling me Bobby, and I hated Bobby because that was like a little kid, um, and the names will stick, so don't ever worry about uh, that the moniker names you get because at the last at the last legend ceremony at the expo, I'm in the green room and. Bob Iger walks by and he says, hi, Bobby. <laughs> oh, God. I'm, I'm never going to get out from underneath Bobby. <laughs> it was assigned to me by Walt. <laughs> That's so fantastic. It's okay. It's okay. Awesome. Thank you again. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Carrie and I had an absolute ball talking to Bob and I'm sure that came through in the episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and please help us get the word out. Share the podcast with your friends, your family, anyone that you think might need a little extra pixie dust in their day. Till next time, remember, you are never too old to be young. Chase your dreams and design your own happily ever after.